Okay, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Ineffable Creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom hast appointed three hierarchies of angels, and set them in admirable order high above the heavens, and hast disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such a marvelous array. Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind, and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety and in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou who art true God and man, in liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Okay, so we're finally finishing off on the principles of nature. Uh, this I know it got a rough. I know it got rough at some points. Oh yeah, if you guys have questions or anything or need me to stop to ask, uh, just tag me in class notes. I'll just have class notes open. Uh, so yes, I'm still still recording it. Uh, somebody asked me. So yeah, so we're gonna be finishing up uh, chapters four, five, and six. I know it's probably hasn't been the most exciting reading in the world from St. Thomas. Uh, some of it's probably been a, li a little bit boring, uh, but actually this is just a presentation quickly of his most foundational philosophical motifs uh, when it comes to uh, natural uh, philosophy. So you got kind of got a, it's, it's like doing leg day. You got, you got to do leg day, but uh, from now on all the way, until the end, actually, uh, because we'll be doing Dante Essentia at the end, all the way from now until then, uh, it's all going to be theology stuff. So you guys don't have to worry about being bored by any more philosophy stuff. So after this, we're going to be getting into his uh, commentaries, his uh, well, catechetical commentaries. So his commentary on the Apostles' Creed. We're going to start out with that, then we're going to go to his. Uh, commentary on the Pater, his commentary on the Ave, and then finally uh, his commentary on the Ten Commandments, uh, just to kind of keep together the, um, the the doctrine of the church, the uh, prayer of the church, then also the moral action of the church. And uh, that that's really uh, how kind of catechetical instruction works, is to, um, well, that and the sacraments of the church are important, but that's usually included under faith, although sometimes separated from it but yeah we're going to be getting all of all of what saint thomas uh would have taught uh if, if saint thomas could have ran an rcia class what would saint thomas have taught that's kind of going to be the next uh probably get through them pretty quickly so next maybe two months we might spend on it but yeah this is going to be a lot more enjoyable um you guys probably will have a lot more comments you'll want to make because it's going to be theology stuff and I'm assuming everybody here is a lot more interested in theology than philosophy. So uh, let's begin um, where, with chapter four and five. Uh, it was just him kind of tying up loose ends from the first three chapters. So really, uh, sorry, but this is kind of going to be, uh, at least in four and five, the most boring section of the most boring work. Uh, sorry about that, but 
you gotta you gotta eat your Wheaties. And uh, in chapter six, we're going to be getting into analogy, which is going to become very very important. So actually, I'm going to uh, be quite intense about making sure you guys uh, know what you're talking about when it comes to analogy. So uh, thus far, uh, to recap, we've went over uh, first chapters about act and potency. We went over sort of the basic principles of form and matter uh, and um, what it means for something to be the matter from which, matter in which, what it means for something to be a subject, what it means for something to be a substantial form or an accidental form, just, just that basic stuff right there. And then uh, if you don't remember uh, any of those terms, you should probably go back. That's what's so good about this work on the principles of nature is if you forget stuff, um, you can kind of make a mental outline of the work because it's just so darn short. And then later on, if you're reading about, I don't know, uh, something simple like act and potency, you're like, crap, what does act mean? You just go to chapter one, paragraph one, and you read how exactly does he define it? Note that some things can be, although they are not, and some things now are. Well, okay, act is what is now are. Well, now is, that is. So uh, just creating kind of a mental outline of some of the stuff in this work. When you do get caught up, uh, when you're reading through St. Thomas, this is just a really good um, kind of uh, place to just go back and get your quick answer. And he also gives quick examples. This this work is just good for good for something like that. So... Uh, that was chapter one. Chapter two, we uh, included uh, privation uh, and then went through all of the principles of nature and uh, compared them, looked at the specific nature of what prime matter is. Uh, that was fun. Looked at some of the things about privation. That was fun. And then in chapter three, we got into the four causes, um, which, yeah, it's just the, just the four causes, which basically everybody knows what the four causes are. But it's really cool to see how the how the logic is kind of worked through to where how, how do we get from looking at something as matter and form? And how do we go from that to making the judgment of the four causes? And then now uh, in four and five, we're just going to kind of be looking at how all of the causes interact and how we can predicate and, and all that fun stuff. And then six, we'll get into the more important stuff with analogy. OK, but after that brief introduction. Uh, does anybody have any quick questions before I begin? Okay, I'm going to take that as a no. That's good. I guess I'm good at explaining things. Okay, let's begin. Let me just check my notes out real quick. Okay, so uh, let's begin. Now that we have seen that... Oh, wait... I need to, oh yeah, I need to share my screen from, okay, there we go. Everybody's watching live. I'm also doing this in the Discord right now. So it's like a double sharing that's going on. So I'm going to have to so just notice when I'm talking, I'm probably not talking to you, um, live chat people on YouTube that are watching. Okay. So now that we have seen that there are four genera of causes, we must understand that it is not impossible that the same thing have many causes. Okay, this is this is kind of like obvious right now. You're like St. Thomas, you're telling me something I already know. Something may have multiple causes. Well, no duh. Well, let's continue. For example, the statues whose causes are both the bronze and the artist. 
The artist is the efficient cause, while the bronze is the material cause. Okay, no duh. You're not telling me anything new. Nor is it impossible that the same thing be the cause of contraries. Okay, we're getting we're getting to some interesting stuff. For example, the captain is the cause of the safety of the ship and of its sinking. Hence, he is the cause of the latter by his absence and of the former by his presence. So one thing can be the cause of many things, even if they're contraries. Okay, yeah, this is this is kind of obvious. That that's how this whole chapter's these whole two chapters are gonna go. Like, yeah, it's kind of obvious when I think about it. Also, note. And this is this is actually be really important for some other stuff in theology. Also notice that it is possible that the same thing be a cause and the thing caused with respect to the same thing, but in diverse ways. So to give a quick theological example, let's look at revelation in the church. Does the church cause revelation or does revelation cause the church? It's a bit of trick, bit of a trick question, because in one sense, revelation uh, the church cannot exist without revelation because revelation uh, is that which comes from God and it constitutes the church. So uh, revelation, we need revelation for the church to exist. But the other hand, we kind of need the church for revelation to exist uh, in two ways. In, in one way, in preserving the text of uh, revelation among us and the teaching of revelation among us. And in another way, in order to be uh, what, um, is called in the schools the condition of revelation, the, the applier of revelation. So both the church can cause revelation and revelation can cause the church. But we understand that these are in diverse ways. They're in different aspects. So in theology, this is going to be very important because you're going to get uh, a lot of these disputes that arise from people who aren't able to understand this principle right here. Uh, you'll you'll get this a lot in very shallow and cheap objections. And then maybe you can just use one of these examples right, uh, right here. For example, uh, walking is sometimes the cause of health as the efficient hall, uh, cause, but health is the cause of walking as the end. Walking is sometimes on account of health. You can respond, well, walking is, uh, walking is the cause of health and health is the cause of walking. So sure, revelation is the cause of the church and church is the cause of revelation. Also, the body is the matter of the soul, but the soul is the form of the body. The efficient cause is called a cause with respect to its end, since the end is actual only by the operation of an agent. So the efficient cause brings the thing to its end. That's uh, that's pretty obvious. If it's uh, if it's my end to build a house, let's say, only my building, uh, well, me building is going to cause the end of building the house or the house being built. But the end is called the cause of the efficient cause. Notice this is actually really interesting. This is going to have even more theological implications. This is going to be even more universal, actually. But the end is called the cause of the efficient cause. Since the efficient cause does not operate except by the intention of the end. Let's let's think about this real quick. There's a saying and I repeat it all the time, if you ever heard me say it, that um, that which is first in intention is last in execution. What does that mean? What does that mean, that which is first in intention is last in execution? It means exactly what is being said here. The efficient cause is called a cause with respect to the end, since the end is actually by the operation of the agent. But the end is called the cause of the efficient cause, since the efficient cause does not operate except by the intention of the end. Uh, 
So when you go to build, uh, let's say you go to bake a cake. What is the final cause of uh, the baking? Well, the final cause of the baking is the cake. Now, why did you why did you go to bake a cake? Well, because you wanted a cake, right? So what caused you to bake the desire for the cake? So your intention, that is the end, is actually what's causing your action. So that which is first in intention, your cake, is last in execution. That is the final cause or the end result of your action. So this is really important uh, in theology when it comes to God's working in the world. Because God has intended the uh, really um, the end of all creation is the exterior glory of God in the redemption, in the redemptive incarnation. And the consummation of that in the second coming of Christ. We have a bunch of this stuff happen that leads up to that. All of that stuff was crescendoing towards the redemptive incarnation, eventually towards the consummation of the second coming of Christ. The, sec the consummation of all things, that is the first intention of God. And everything that goes up to that is the execution of his providence to, to bring towards that. So our, under, our entire understanding of providence is shaped just by this simple philosophical principle that the end is called the cause of the efficient cause, since the efficient cause does not operate except by intention of the end. And uh, continuing, he, it, this gets really good. This gets really good, trust me. Hence, the efficient cause is the cause of that which is the end. For example, walking in order to be healthy. However, the efficient cause does not cause the end to be the end. Therefore, it is not the cause of the causality of the end. That is, it does not cause the end to be the final cause. For example, the doctor causes health to actually exist, but he does not cause health to be the end. So the thing is caused by the efficient cause, but the fact that it is the end, the fact that it is intended to be the end, that is prior to everything. That's first. That's why we're going to see that the final cause is called the cause of causes because it causes everything, all the other causes. I know I'm saying cause a lot. I'm getting very self-conscious about that. Also, the end is not the cause of that which is the efficient cause, but it is the cause of the efficient cause being the efficient cause. So the end is the cause of the efficient cause being the efficient cause. You get that? For example, health does not cause the doctor to be a doctor. I'm speaking of the health which comes about by doctor's activity, but it causes the doctor to be an efficient cause. So notice, when, when it comes to all of these, uh, all these genera of causes, we look at efficient cause, we look at final cause, we're looking at what places these things to be causes, not what uh, necessarily causes these things, but what makes them causes the intention of the final cause causes the efficient cause to be the efficient cause. And the thing of the efficient cause causes the final, the thing that is the final cause. So you need to distinguish between the thing relationship and the cause relationship as intention. Therefore, the end is the cause. Okay. I, I'm saying cause so much. 
Therefore, the end is the cause of the causality of the efficient cause, because it causes the efficient cause to be an efficient cause. Likewise, the end causes the matter to be the matter and the form to be the form. Since matter receives its form only for the sake of the end, and form perfects the matter only through an end. So you look at all, actually, it's just not the efficient cause. When you go to build a house and you intend that final end of the house, not only the efficient causality of you working on the house, but all of the material that you bring forward and you putting together that material into the form of a house, all of those exist for the sake of the end. It exists for the sake of the house that's going to come uh, through at the end. That's all that's being said here. So don't, don't let it be super confusing. Although I probably made it super confusing. Therefore, we say that the end is the cause of causes because it is the cause of the causality in all causes. This is really, from this whole thing, that's all you need to memorize, or all you need to remember. Uh, the cause is the end is the cause of causes because this is the cause of the causality in all the causes. So now, uh, continuing to now the relationship, not between efficient and final, <clears throat> but the relationship uh, between matter and form. Also, we say that matter is the cause of form insofar as form exists only in matter. So we can call matter the cause of form because uh, if you think about it, when you have your, uh, your bronze out there and you put the form of statue on your bronze, the form of statue only exists because it is caused by the bronze. Likewise, so we have a, we have a, a reciprocal relationship. Likewise, the form is the cause of the matter insofar as matter has existence in act only through the form because matter and form are spoken of in relation to each other. As it is said in the second book of the physics, they are also spoken in relation to the composite as parts of the whole and as the simple, the, the compound. So in another way, form is the cause of matter. Why? How could I say that? You're like, well, the bronze, the bronze is, uh, it exists in act before, before the form of statues put on it. It's a good point. But that bronze still has the form of uh, whatever shape it's in. It still has that form. It still has that form. What would happen if there was bronze with no form? What would that be called? That would be called prime matter and it wouldn't exist. So in order for matter to ever be in, a, in act, it has to have form. So we see that there is this reciprocal relationship always present uh, between matter and form between end and efficient cause, both the things and the intention, everything has this sort of reciprocal relationship. It's, it's not as uh, clean and clear cut as, as you were taught in your intro to philosophy course. But because every cause as cause is naturally prior to what it, which it causes, so this principle is just simple, cause as cause is naturally prior to that which it causes, because otherwise, that which it causes would exist without a cause. It would be it'd be uncaused. And if something is both caused and uncaused, that makes no sense. Something's the the cause of something that is exists as caused before it. That just that just doesn't make any sense. Notice we say a thing is prior in two ways. So we're getting into priority and posteriority. And if you're not familiar with that language, prior just means before. 
Posterior, that just means after. Simple and easy. As Aristotle says in the History of Animals 16, because of this diversity, we can call something prior and posterior with respect to the same thing, with the cause and the thing caused. So, again, we're speaking we're speaking of prior and posterior relative. It's something which is relative. It's relative to different aspects, just as something can be causes of each other, but only in different aspects. We say that uh, we say that one thing is prior to another from the point of view of generation and time, and likewise from the point of view of substance and completeness. So there's two ways of thinking of prior and posterior. One is when it comes to time, and the other is when it comes to perfection. That's how I'm summarizing these two terms, time and perfection. So since the operation of nature proceeds from the imperfect to the perfect, and from the incomplete to the complete, the imperfect is prior to the perfect. Now, the imperfect is prior to the perfect in what? In perfection or in time? Obviously in time. Namely, from the point of view of generation and time. But the perfect is prior to the imperfect from the point of view of substance. When it, when it comes to completeness, when it comes to perfection. This is obvious. For example, we say that the man is before the boy according to substance and completeness. So the man is more perfect than the boy. But the boy is before the man according to the generation and time. So priority of nature, priority of perfection. There's two ways in which we can speak of priority and posteriority. So now getting into paragraph six, we're going to be applying this priority and posteriority. But although in generable things, the imperfect is prior to the perfect, and potency to act, notice priority in time, we consider that in one in the same thing, the imperfect is prior to the perfect and potency to act. Still, simply speaking, notice we're moving from in a certain generable thing. So obviously, the imperfect comes before the perfect in the life of a person. But simply speaking, so speaking just uh, when it comes to the nature of things, really when it comes to the nature of all reality, the act imperfect must be prior because that which is an act that reduces potency to act and it is perfect and perfects the imperfect. So this may sound super uh, obscure. This is actually super important. This actually is what grounds our arguments for the existence of God right here. Because as we thought about earlier, we know that the form is, has, is as to act, right? We know that the, the matter is as to potency, right? Yeah, of course we know that. So we said when we came to our bronze statue, our bronze statue, the bronzeness is the matter and the statueness is the form. And we said that if we removed the form, then it would be prime matter and just not exist. So in order, so from the principles here, that the act and the perfect must be prior. So in order for anything to exist, there needs to be act which brings about existence and potency. So now when we have act that's prior to this, uh, the act in the form that's prior to the potency in the matter, when we have this relationship right here, we must be able to reason back to that which is pure actuality, that which is actus purus. If you ever heard of that phrase before, I'm sure you have. 
So we reason back to that which is actus purus. We reason back to God. So that's why this is a lot of these. See, uh, what I what I hope I'm illustrating through explaining these things is that actually these do have a lot of theological weight. And we will be going back to these principles. So yeah, they sound boring now, but again, got to eat your Wheaties. And uh, somebody asked me a question. Uh, I'm just going to answer questions after I'm, I'm done. And I should probably go a little bit quicker. I'm only through like half of four. Matter is prior to form from the point of view of generation and time, because that to which something comes is prior to what comes to it. Okay. We already went kind of went over that. But form is prior to matter from the point of view of substance and completeness, because matter has completed existence only through the form. Likewise, the efficient cause is prior to the end from the point of view of generation and time, since the motion to that end comes from the efficient cause. But the end is prior to the efficient cause insofar as it is the efficient cause from the point of view of the substance completeness, since the action of the efficient cause is completed only through the end. Therefore, these two causes, the material and the efficient, are prior by way of generation, but form and the end are prior by way of perfection. So really, to get all of what we've said thus far, this paragraph just sum, sums it up. Okay. Now the, uh, the different types of necessity it must be noted that there are two kinds of necessity, absolute and conditional absolute necessity is that which proceeds from the causes by way of generation, the material and the efficient causes. An example of this is the necessity of death, which comes from the matter, namely the disposition of the composing contraries. This is called absolute because it does not have any, an impediment. It is also called the necessity of matter. So matter, matter doesn't have the same, uh, how do we put it, self-sufficient malleability as form. Because matter needs something extrinsic to it to change it. So there's not really hypotheticals when it comes to matter on its own, on its own uh, right. Death is going to happen unless something else intervenes. Now, what is that intervening? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is called conditional necessity. Conditional necessity, on the other hand, proceeds from causes posterior in generation, namely the form and the end. For example, we call the conception, uh, that conception is necessary if man is to be generated. So when it comes to the actual constitution of something, when it comes to an end to be achieved, when it comes to a form to be uh, impressed upon matter, these are conditional necessities. It doesn't have uh, absolute necessity. This is called conditional because it is not necessary simply that this woman conceives, but it is only conditionally necess uh, necessary if a man is to be generated. This is called the necessity of the end. Okay, so this this one's I, I thought was kind of funny. Uh, it feels like he's just flexing now by trying to figure out uh, different examples. Notice also that three causes can coincide in one thing, namely the form the end in the efficient cause. So it's fun because the form of something, the end of something and the efficient cause of something could be the same exact thing just under three different respects. So as is plain in the generation of fire, fire generates fire. Therefore fire is the efficient cause insofar as it is generates. Fire is also the formal cause insofar as it causes to exist. Actually that which before was in potency. So fire causes fire. Therefore, fire is the efficient cause. 
but also fires that which is caused. So fires the formal cause. And again, it is the end insofar as the operation of the agent are terminated in it, and insofar as it is intended by the agent. So if you intend to light something on fire, you're intending fire, you're using fire, and you're impressing fire. So fire is uh, three causes, one thing. So it's fascinating. But the one thing that's left out is the material cause. It's, uh, it's the lonely cause, which we'll get into a bit later. But the end is twofold. So now we're distinguishing the end. The end of generation and the end of the thing generated, as is plain in the generation of a knife. The form of the knife is the end of generation. So don't get final, don't, don't get the, uh, don't get, uh, don't get it mixed up. Don't get it mixed up. The form of the knife is the end of generation. So all acts are going to terminate in the form. As we think about like our building the house. Our intention is to build a house, and the form of houseness is the end of our building. But, uh, and so therefore, it could be both the form and the final cause in that way. But the end of the thing generated, what's the end of a house? Well, it's living in it. So really, uh, we can look at the more um, remote end is going to be uh, living, not just uh, having a house, but also living. The form of the knife is the end of generation, but cutting, which is the operation of the knife, is the end of the thing generated, namely of the knife. Moreover, the end of generation sometimes is coincident with the two aforementioned causes, namely when generation takes place from what is similar in species, as when a man generates man and an olive and olive, but this cannot be understood as the end of the thing generated. Okay, continuing, finally getting to chapter five. It's okay, I think five and six are much shorter. Notice then the end coincides with the form in something which is numerically the same. So um, end and form are exactly the same in a numerical uh, sameness. So what is, what is a numerical uh, sameness? So um, we can have really three levels of sameness, which we're going to be getting into here and then also later. So something can be numerically identical. So that just means it shares uh, the same exact thingness. It's the same thing, if you want to put it like that. There's specific, uh, uh, there's specific identity, and that's going to be the same kind of thing. So Peter and Paul, they're not numerically identical because they're different people, but they're both people, so they're specifically identical. And there's also what's called generic identity. So generic identity is the same category, if you want to put it like that. So um, I and, I don't know, a, a, a dog. We're both of the genus animal. Therefore, we're uh, generically identical. So the end coincides with the form in something which is numerically the same. Because that which is the form of the thing generated and that which is the end of generation are the same numerically. So as we said, our house, when we intend to build a house, the, the end that is the thing, which we just went over in the last paragraph, which is the house, the house and the form of houseness, it's the same exact thing. Same exact thing. So uh, I hope I, I made something very simple, very convoluted. But it does not coincide with the efficient cause in the thing numerically the same, but in the thing specifically the same. Because it is impossible that the maker and the thing made be numerically the same. Because if they're numerically the same, the maker and the thing made 
you're going to have the effect existing before the cause. But they can be specifically the same. For example, when a duck produces a duck, duck produces a duck, they're specifically the same, although they're numerically distinct ducks. Thus, when man generates man, the man generating and the one generated are numerically diverse, but they are specifically the same. However, matter does not coincide with the others. This is because matter, by the fact that it is being in potency, has the nature of something imperfect, but the other causes, since they are in act, have the nature of something perfect. However, the perfect and the imperfect do not coincide in the same thing. So matter is never going to show this uh, same coincidence of causes that everything else has or we're like. Something something uh, can be the efficient, the final, the, the formal, just like fire can be identical, but you're never going to have the material cause being identical to something because it has the notion of imperfection as the notion of potency. An act and potency cannot be identical. <clears throat> okay, so uh, continuing, I'm just going to check, making sure everything's still okay. Yep, yep, checking the live chat, everything's okay. Okay, let's continue. Therefore, now that we have seen that there are four causes, the efficient, formal, material, and final, we must note that any of these causes can be spoken of in many ways. Okay, now we're, now we're categorizing not their relationship with one another, but kind of just general categories or general, uh, yeah, general categories. We call one thing a prior cause and another a posterior cause. You're never going to guess why. For example, we say that art and the doctor are the cause of health. <laughs> and to explain art by the art and the doctor, he means art as in like medical arts. So the medical arts and the doctor are the cause of health. So what, what made you healthy? Medical skills. What also made you healthy? The doctor. Well, yeah, kind of both. But art is the prior cause and doctor is the posterior cause. Why? Because the doctor works by way of medical arts. It is simple. Uh, it is similar in the formal cause and in the other causes. Notice that we must always bring the question back to the first cause. For example, if we asked, why is this man healthy? We would ask, because the doctor has healed him. Likewise, if it be asked, why did the doctor heal him? It was asked because of the art of healing, which the doctor has. So these causes, this is actually really important in sacramental theology, which I'll illustrate in a second. This is really important in sacramental theology. But these causes can have relation to one another. It's kind of like a nesting doll. So really, when it comes to, if you keep questioning when it comes to causes, we could probably think of an infinite number of causes for everything. So uh, don't, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Usually we just generally speak of that, which uh, is kind of most obviously um, the cause of something. Although we can get always more specific and always uh, less specific. We can get always more prior and always more posterior if we wanted to. Notice also that the proximate cause is the same as the posterior cause. And the remote cause is the same as the prior cause. This is super important. Uh, something like, uh, this reminded me of sacramental theology when it comes to baptism. There is both a proximate matter and a remote matter of baptism. What's the remote matter? Well, the remote matter is water. What is the proximate matter? 
the pouring of water or the sprinkling of water or the um or uh, crap what is it the uh, dunking in the water so we can ask well what was the man baptized with he was baptized with water well well uh, why or how i guess you could say how he's baptized by water which was poured so the pouring proximate it's uh it's something which is uh something which is posterior the remote the water the constitution of the water that's something which is prior but this remote and proximate well, this actually uh has been getting into the the question surrounding uh the immaculate conception saint thomas aquinas but i i won't get i won't bore you guys with that stuff so hence these two divisions of causes into prior and posterior remote and proximate signify the same thing Moreover, it must be observed that uh, that which is more universal is always called the remote cause. So the remote cause of everything in the highest sense is always God. God is the remote cause of everything. But that which is most particular is called the proximate cause. For example, we say that the proximate form of man is his definition, namely rational animal. But animal is the more remote and substance is still the most remote, more remote than being is the most remote. All superiors are forms of the inferiors. Again, the proximate matter of the statue is bronze, but the remote matter is metal, and the still more remote matter is body. And we can even go even further and say the more remote is substance, and the more remote is being. See, everything like uh, we can keep getting more and less specific, more remote and more proximate, more prior and most po posterior. Further, there is one cause which is an essential cause. Another with which is an accidental, which I don't really need to even go over essential and accidental causes, I hope. So I'm going to, for sake of time, I'm just going to go past that. Uh, some causes are simple. Some causes are composed. thought this was pretty simple, too. Um, the doctor as builder, that's simple. The, um, the builder as builder, that's simple. The medical builder that's composed. That's just how language works. Composed just means there's two ideas present. And then uh, continuing. Again, some causes are an act, others in potency. It causes an act. Uh, a cause in act is one which causes a thing in act as builder while he is building. A bronze or a statue made to it. And then the builder in potency when the builder is not building. He's a cause in potency. This one is relatively simple too. Moreover, it should be noted that the universal cause is compared to the universal thing that is caused. The singular cause is compared to the singular thing that is caused. So this was also simple. A builder causes a house. That's a universal statement. This builder causes this house. That is a specific statement. So could we skipped all that just to get to analogy? This is going to be the most important. So I wanted to make sure I had adequate time to cover that before we got into all those fun questions. Also notice that when we speak of intrinsic principles, remember your intrinsic principles, matter and form. What are your extrinsic principles? Efficient final. So matter, form, intrin intrinsic, efficient final, extrinsic. Notice that when we speak of intrinsic principles, according to the agreement and difference of things, that are from principles, and according to the agreement and di difference of principles, we find that some are numerically the same, 
So we went over this a little bit. Some are numerically the same as our Socrates in this man in the Socrates now pointed out. So me and myself, uh, we are we are numerically the same, or I guess I am numerically the same as myself. Others are numerically diverse and specifically the same as Socrates and Plato, who, although they differ numerically, have the same human species. They have the same species. I am specifically the same, believe it or not, as St. Thomas Aquinas. Can you believe that? We are specifically identical. Others differ specifically, but are generically the same. As man and ass have the same genus of animal. Can you believe that? I am generically the same as an ass. You'll probably believe that a lot more. Others are generically diverse and are only analogically the same. Ooh, here, here's where we get very important right here. Very, very important. Others are generically diverse and are only analogically the same as substance and quantity, which have no common genus and are only analogically the same because they are the same only insofar as they are beings. Being, however, is not a genus because it is not uh, predicated univ uh, univocally, but only analogically. Okay, so why is he saying this? Why is he saying this? So as everybody knows, well, at least I hope uh, you guys are at least broadly aware of. I mean, if you don't know, don't worry. I'll explain it to you. We can use terms in three ways. First, we can use terms univocally. This is just, uh, if you don't know about this, read the first paragraph in Aristotle's categories. This is uh, easy intro to logic stuff. So things can be predicated univocally. That is that they share a singular uh, nature. So Socrates is a man. Christian B. Wagner is a man. That is a univocal predication. On the other hand, we can have an equivocal predication where only uh, the, the term is shared. Only the term is shared. Uh, trying to think of an example. Ah, like if we said uh, catfish and cat or James White in the white wall. James White, white is a last name. The white wall, white is a color. They only share the sort of sound. They're equivocal. That's uh, that's actually one of your uh, one of your fallacies you need to know is the fallacy of equivocation, where it's using the same word, but in completely different definitions. On the other hand, we can have um, analogical. An analogical, they share in the nature of both. So on the one hand, they're the same in one respect. On the other hand, they're different in, in another respect. And if you want to get all, I'm, I'm just going to give simply what St. Thomas says here, because I don't think it would be uh, too prudent for me to get into the super detailed stuff. If you want the super detailed stuff, uh, look up Cajetan's um, treatment of analogy. It's very good for understanding things like the analogy of proportionality. But analogy Let's say we have Christian B. Wagner is a man, and that shirt over there is manly. Now, by man, 
do I broadly mean the same thing? Yeah, there's there's both a connection to a, a human adult male. But does that shirt have the nature of a rational animal? No. It just has some sort of relationship to uh, human adult males, such that it is uh, something which is flattering to them, which is why it's called manly. So this is this is something very important. Now, why does he say that being is like this? Well, if you, again, if you go back to your Aristotle's categories, he's got these 10 categories, one category of substance, nine categories of accidents. And then above all those categories, there's what's called being. It's called being. Being really just is uh, is referring to and this is something super broad, so uh, don't. <clears throat> get mad at me if you're if you're a little bit more advanced into the uh, into the reflections on being, but being in its broadest possible sense is going to be uh, referring to the act of existence, and something is a being because it has this act of uh, existence. Or, uh, in order to clarify between being as act of existence and being as one who has the act of existence, uh, a friend and I have uh, come up with beer, beer, like somebody's a runner because they run just, uh, just so something is a beer because it bees or it is, or maybe we could say is her. I don't know. You guys, you guys got to tell me what you like. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Just, just, uh, just to illustrate this. So, why can't being or beer or be or act of be or act of existence? Why can't all? Why can't this be univocal? Well, here's I'm I'm, I'm so glad you asked because let's uh, let's take for example the genus of animal because all of those things in a genus are predicated univocally. How am I different from Socrates? I'm different from Socrates because we uh, are numerically distinct. We have different matter. Now, how am I? We, we're identical in uh, our form, though. We both have the form of, uh, of humanity. So uh, when it comes to me and a fish, how are we distinct? Well, I'm distinct because I have the specific difference of rationality. Now. What's the issue when it comes to being? The issue that comes with being, as we saw with uh, my example between me and the fish, is in order to distinguish between those that are in the genus, you need something that is outside of the genus. Because if rational was included in the genus of animal, then the fish would be rational. And I wouldn't be able to distinguish man from fish. No, we have, we have these specific differences that uh, that distinguish all of the species. So when it comes to being, if it was a genus, in order to distinguish all of the beers in the genus of being or, or the, yeah, I'll just keep I'll just, I'll just go back and forth because I feel like it. So in order to distinguish between all of the beings in the genus of being, we would need something outside of being. Well, what's the problem with that? If something is outside of being, it's non-being. And if something is something is non-being, then it doesn't be. And if something doesn't be, then it doesn't exist. And then there would be no difference. 
so you being can't be a genus because you wouldn't be able to have differences between things because the differences would be nothing because there's nothing outside of being. I know that may sound convoluted at first. So rather than saying that being is something which is univocal between all of these different beers, we have to say that being is something which is analogical. Something which is analogical. And in, uh, in reality, we, we say what's, uh, what's called an analogy of proportionality. That my act of existence and the fish's act of existence, they have a certain proportion between them that we call being. So this is, this is uh, still a bit of, uh, of, of too, uh, abstract, I guess is the best way to put it, abstract knowledge. And when we get into Dante Desentio, we'll cover it a little bit more. But that's basically what is going on here. And that's why I wanted to cover this in a little bit more detail, because I know that would be confusing. So continuing, in order to understand this last, we must notice something is predicated of many things in three ways, univocally, equivocally, and analogically. Something is predicated univocally according to the same name and the same nature, that is definition, as animals predicated of man and of ass, because each is called animal and each is sensible animated substance, which is the definition of animal. So univocal, animals univocal because they all have the same nature. That is predicated equivocally, which is predicated of something according to the same name, but according to a different nature, as dog is said to the thing that barks and the star in the heavens, which two agree in the name, but not in the definition and signification, because that which is signified by the name is the definition, as is said in the fourth book of the metaphysics. That is said to be predicated analogically, which is predicated of many whose natures are diverse but who, which are attributed to one and the same thing, as health is said of the animal body or of the urine and of food, because uh, urine is a certain sign of health, because apparently they thought that your urine could be used as like diagn a diagnostic tool, and then food is the cause of health. But it does not signify entirely the same thing in all three. It is said of urine as the sign of health, of the body as of the subject of, of health, and of food as the cause of health. Now, all these natures are attributed to one end, namely to health. So they're only called healthy by some sort of relation, not a single proper nature which is shared between them. Uh, sometimes those things which agree according to analogy, that is in proportion, comparison, or agreement. So if you don't remember what an, an analogy, we could say two is to four as four is to eight. It is an analogy. Sometimes those things which agree according to analogy, so we could say food is to health, that is food, uh, no, food is to the body as the cause of health, as motor oil is to the car, in that it is the cause of it running well. So we can call our car healthy and we can call uh, our body healthy, or we can call motor oil healthy, we can call food healthy. Because they both cause the good running of something. If you wanted to wax eloquent like that. I don't know if that's eloquent. That definitely isn't. Something, those things which agree according to analogy are attributed to one end. As was plain in the preceding example of health. Sometimes they are attributed to one agent. As, uh, as medical is said of one who acts with art. 
of one who acts without art, like a midwife, and even of with instruments. But it is said of all the attribution to one agent, which is medicine. Sometimes it is said by attribution to one subject, as being is used, of substance, quality, quantity, and other predicaments. Those are the categories. Because it is not entirely for the same reason that substance is being, and quantity, and the others. Rather, all are called being insofar as they are attributed to substance, which is the subject of the others. Hence, being is said primarily of substance and secondarily of the others. Therefore, being is not a genus of substance and quantity because no genus is predicated of its species according to prior and posterior. Rather, being is predicated analogically. This is what we mean when we say that substance and quantity differ generically but are the same analogically. Therefore, and I'm trying to finish this up so I can take questions. Therefore, the form and matter of those things which are numerically the same are themselves likewise numerically the same, as are the form and matter of Tullius and Cicero. If you don't know Tullius and Cicero, those are just two names for the same person. So different name, uh, same numerically. The matter and form of those things which are specifically the same and numerically diverse are not the same numerically, but specifically as the matter and form of Socrates and Plato. They both have a body and soul. Likewise, the matter and form of those things which are generically the same as the soul and the body of an ass and a horse are different specifically, but are the same generically. Likewise, the principles of those things which agree only analogically or proportionally are the same only analogically or proportionally, because matter, form, and privation, or potency and act, are the principles of substances and of other genuses. However, the matter, form, and privation of substance and quantity differ generically, but they agree according to proportion only insofar as the matter of substance is to substance in the nature of matter, as the matter of quantity is to quantity. Still, just as substance is the cause of the others, so the principles of substance are the principles of all the others. Okay, we have finally finished up. Only five minutes late, so I can take questions. So if you want to talk, that's fine. If you want to type question, that's fine. I saw some typed question somewhere, I swear. okay you're a noob trying to learn these things oh sorry for rushing it at the end yeah <coughs> okay so analogy, like when it just simple, when it comes to definition, it shares in univocal and equivocal, like that's kind of everybody already knows that. So uh, let's say um, we, we refer to God as father. What do we mean when we call God father? Like fa father of, of uh, in, in the sense of the father uh, in his general creative sense of, of the entire world. Well, we call him father because he in, he in some sense produces. So God produces, and therefore we can give him the name father. This, uh, yeah, I'll leave. But we, we use the term uh, father among us for somebody who gives another, uh, who passes on the... Um, passes on human nature to another. So father in its definition 
means somebody who produces another who is specifically the same, of the same species. But God isn't producing something else of the same species when he creates. We refer to like the creative father of God. Rather, it's just by some sort of um, likeness. There's some sort of likeness. God is to creation as a father is to a child in that they both have some sort of general productive uh, relationship. So that that's that's, I guess, a a a, a bit of a simpler uh, analogy, but it just means they they have some sort of proportion to one another by a relationship. Rather than by the same proper nature. So like we're not obviously human fathers are not of the same species as God. We, we don't share the same exact nature. That, that would be, that'd be ridiculous uh, in order to say that it's actually against the Catholic faith to say that. So yeah, yeah. So, um, so analogy, uh, it's you, usually when we use it, we mean it, it subsumes genus. So they're not like in the same uh, category. So uh, for and usually under the aspect in which uh, one's comparing it, like uh, used for the example of the shirt that is manly. The shirt that is manly, it's not in the, uh, the, the category of man. It's not in the category of man at all. It, it doesn't. It doesn't have a rational animality, but it has some sort of external relation in that it accentuates uh, what it means to be a rational animal, and that's why we call it manly. So yeah, basically all you have to understand is it's not exactly the same, but it's also not completely different. If, if you just want to like boil it down to its its uh, simplest parts, just not exactly the same, not completely different. Okay, so somebody asked another question. So when I'm working on a machine and trying to cut a spade bore in a casing, the machine is the material cause of the casing. The casing is the prime matter, and I am the efficient cause working on the spade bore with the intention of making it into a casing. I have I've no idea uh, about the analogy. But the, um, the one thing I can tell you is that the casing is not the prime matter. Because prime matter doesn't exist. Um, could could you could you give a different mechanical uh, question? Okay, so good question. Uh, is being in essence synonymous? No, no. So uh, by essence, and this is from uh, YouTube, just in case somebody in the Discord is wondering where the heck this question came from. So by being. Being just refers, as I said, in the most broad way to uh, to existence. But essence, essence refers to uh, usually, I, I, will, I will keep it, that which is signified by the definition. That which is signified by the definition. So my essence is rational animality. That's my essence. But rational animality isn't my being, isn't my act of existence. Because if rational animality 
if my essence was my act of existence, just think, think about this real quick. It kind of gets a bit trippy. Um, but if my act of existence was my essence and my existence was something which was essential, then my existence would be necessary. And the only, the only being whose existence is necessary and whose existence is identical with his essence is God. So my existence, that is my being, has to be something which is outside of my essence. So uh, they can't really be synonymous. Really, essence is uh, what something is, if you want to put it like that. Being is that something is. And again, for all of the autists out there who aren't just beginning, uh, I'm, I'm giving these things very broad explanations. So don't like jump with me for it. Oh, Luke eleven twenty eight apologetics is he's he's giving me a better uh, analogy because I can't understand the spade bore analogy. Uh, a little bit. Let me turn your volume. Oh, I had your user volume. Yeah, I can hear you now. Could you could you could you make this uh could you make this analogy with like a hammer and a nail? I'm I am not a machinist. Okay. Could 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 you do like a cake mixer? Would it would that be slightly easier? Okay, could could you give the analogy with a cake mixer? Too womanly. Oh, I've been exposed. Yeah. So the so we can look at the efficient cause in two different ways. And I think this is, uh, this is something that you might have glossed over when it came to the prior and posterior. So we can look at actually multiple efficient causes. So just like the doctor and the art of health are both healing the person, so you and the, uh, the machine are both causing something. So you're the uh, posterior efficient cause. The machine is the prior efficient cause, or we can say the remote efficient cause in the proximate efficient cause. No problem. See, eventually, bro, who's dropping the F-bomb in the, in the chat, in the chat? Yes, so if somebody... I forgot that I need to explain this to like the YouTube people watching, but yes. So if somebody were to mix up some cake mix into cake batter, the person would be the remote efficient cause and the mixer would be the proximate efficient cause. And then if you want the most remote efficient cause, it would be God.
God, you could say in a certain sense, if you want to be super remote, you could say that God is mixing the cake because he is the most remote um, cause. Yeah, and you can also say that, uh, well, well, so water, so to be to be very uh, to be very careful, careful when it comes to the sacraments. The question was asked um, about the relationship between water and God uh, in the sacrament of baptism. So water is actually the material cause of baptism. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the it's the the matter, um, and then the the priest the priest can be said to be the efficient cause. Um, and then the, the, the priest, although is standing in the place of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and baptizing. So our Lord Jesus Christ can be said to be the remote, or actually, if you want to like be hyper, uber duper, like Platonist about this, you could say that actually the priest is just the remote, uh, efficient cause and God is the proximate efficient cause. And it's just like, there's sort of, there's sort of like a cyclical, uh, relationship between God and the priest and baptism. Yeah, but but yeah, for for all for our in, our intent, uh, yeah, the the priest is proximate. God is is remote when it comes to the causality of the sacraments. Yeah, so when it comes to material, material is a little bit uh, more difficult. Uh, we could think of like our cake mix. So the proximate material cause is going to be our cake mix, and the remote material cause would be like the flour and the, and the baking, uh, what, what baking soda, I think goes into it and like the vanilla and the eggs and, and all of that other stuff, which makes up the cake mix, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could, you just like, if you want to go super remote for the material cause, you could say just atoms. Yeah. Atoms are the remote material cause. And the most proximate is the, is the cake batter. So, yeah. So we have to recognize that there are these like grades of, of, prior and posterior and it's because i've i've seen these like reddit tier scholastic argumentations between people that just make me want to bang my head through a desk or people are like well uh if if god is the cause of all things uh how do people cause things as well let's like well let's let's apply the principles of proximate or remote causality um first that, that's just like the baseline thing where it's like yeah something Two things could be the efficient cause of something uh, in terms of remote and uh, and proximate. I I do believe atoms exist. I'm I'm not I I'm not like super into modern chemistry though, so I actually have have no clue. Um, I, I'm I'm open to being corrected on the Adam question. Okay, absolute. Somebody asked me to explain the difference between absolute and conditional necessity. That was in chapter four. Did I miss it? Oh, it must be known that there are two kinds of necessity, absolute and conditional. So absolute, it's going to have to do with the material and efficient causes. 
Example of this would be the necessity of death, which comes from matter, namely the disposition of the composing contraries. This is called absolute because it does not have an impediment. So basically, absolute. So uh, I, I like to I like to uh, talk about this in terms of um, of what is going to happen uh, without flux. So if you have a uh, if, if we think about uh, a man, a man is corruptible, right? So a man is corruptible, uh, and therefore there is this absolute necessity uh, for death. But we can look at a contingent necessity. If a man is going to not die, then he needs to be given uh, certain gifts. But that is on the part of um, a certain superior uh, form given and a certain superior end given. But in terms of like how things normally go without flux, I don't know, maybe that's not the most most helpful uh, helpful analogy or at least explanation to give when it comes to absolute and conditional necessity. Okay, I guess I guess we could actually work within this analogy right here. Okay, so um, for example, we say that conception is necessary if a man is to be generated. This is called conditional because it's not necessary simply that this woman conceive, but only conditionally, namely if a man is to be generated. This is called the necessity of the ends. So when we look at the um, the woman in this example, there is. Um, no absolute necessity for her to conceive because when we look at the the material principles of her we look at the material principles of her um the she the matter and efficient causes um there there's nothing uh in itself which is going to result in the conception of a man but when we add something onto it when we add a certain form that is in the conception of, of a man, the form of um, the uh, the form of uh, sperm and the end that the man be generated, the end of that the new end added on. When we add that on to the woman who just from the ordinary sort of um, intrinsic causes uh, does not have this necessity, there is a new necessity or a conditional necessity added upon. Uh, when you add this, uh, these additional um, circumstances, if you want to put it like that. Does that make any more sense? Okay, that makes more sense. Okay, good. Uh, okay, go ahead. Well, so, yeah, this is weird. Um so when it comes, and I'm I'm explaining this from the the terms of medieval embryology to make it clear. If if that makes you solve a question, yes. Um, that is that is a. A good question. Uh, yes, uh, in the in the genera of uh, 
some sort of extended extended quantity. So um, when we look at rock, the, the 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 form of the rock is something, or the form of the bronze statue is actually something which is um, quantified. But like the the form of something immaterial, simple forms, there there's no sort of uh, physicality or quantity to it. We're we're weird because we're humans, so our form, that is the our souls, are something which are which is immaterial, and our bodies is is what's material. Um, but with other things, uh, yes, the the form we can describe as being uh, material if it is in the genus of quantity. This is actually um, in the last paragraph of six that he that he brings up. So I guess I can tie it back to that. Um, he says, and I know I kind of rushed through it, unfortunately. Uh, okay, so insofar, it's the second to last sentence. So however, the matter, form, and privation of substance and quantity differ generically, but they agree according to the proportion only. Insofar as the matter of substance is to substance in the nature of matter, and the matter of quantity is to quantity. So we have something in the in the genus of quantity. Its matter and form are going to be um, quantity, or uh, they're going to reduce to the categories of quantity. If that makes sense. I know this. This is I like this. I feel like this. Uh, this sort of last like little bit was a bit of a stretch when it comes to like introductory stuff, but I I think it was I think it was still good, broadly speaking. No, no, matter cannot have more than one form. Oh, oh, okay, good, good, good question. So um, for the form of the body in conception. So forms, uh, because remember, forms kind of develop and pass away. Uh, so within medieval embryology, which is, I guess, what I'm in, in terms of what I'm explaining uh, here and I'm not an expert on medieval embryology. I just read like a book or two. So I'm, I'm kind of working off of that. Uh, you have the, the men. So they think there's a mixing of menstrual blood and sperm, which yeah. Anybody, anybody watching uh, right now on live, who just kind of hopped into this. Uh, I'm explaining medieval embryology. You, you have uh, this sort of mixing of uh, sperm and menstrual blood, which happens uh, at conception and the menstrual blood, uh, since the woman is, is is the passive and the man is the active, the uh, the sperm is going to uh, take upon its nature actuality, and the menstrual blood is going to take on its uh, on, on itself uh, passivity. So the um, the sperm is as form, and the menstrual blood is as matter. They mix and come together, and once uh, this this sort of mixing uh, occurs. And it forms, I think there has something to do with like the moon. The moon ends up causing them to form together into a body. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Um, you, you, you have the body, which is form. Then um, they believed 40 days later, you had the infusion of the sensitive. I mean, you had the infusion of the rational soul. So before then, there would be a different substantial form uh, to the body. Then 40 days later, uh, when the rational soul uh, was infused, which would be some sort of, uh, I'm assuming it'd be some sort of like 
sensitive uh, soul rather than a rational soul. So like we, we have to recognize that there's like this development of forms that happens just like in our shaping of the statue, our shaping of the statue. You don't take a statue. You don't take a lump of like iron and just I mean a lump of bronze. You just instantly go from block to like idol. If you wanted to go there, we don't go from block to idol or block to statue rather little by little you work it. So like the form almost like develops if you want to if you want to say it like that it develops into uh what it will be so form actually has a lot more of a uh a sort of fluid conception depends on the stages of um of development this is actually something saint thomas uh brings up in prima pars of the summa when it comes to the uh, creation of all things which leads some people to make some evolutionist um conclusions to saint thomas's thought but i will i will not comment on that Yes. Yes. So form. Uh, so the form of something is the uh, so this is getting a little bit into logic, but the essence of something is really the uh, we can describe it as like the combination of the genus and the specific difference. So of man, the genus uh, is and this is something we'll describe in Dante Essentia, but the genus is the body because the body is that uh, which is animal in us and the and the. Um, and the specific difference is our rationality and our and uh, that which gives us our rationality is our soul. So the matter is actually the genus and um, the form is actually the specific difference. So anytime any of those two change matter or form, you get either a change in um, species or you get a change in genus. Yeah. Well, the the difference. Um, so that that's that's a good that's a good question about um, how this how this works with the sexes. So uh, to to clarify, it's substantial form and substantial matter. So uh, the difference in sex is not found in the soul. The difference in sex is found uh, as a as an accidental form of the body. So it's something which is an accident of the body. If we remember back to chapter one, um, there's a difference between substantial form, which uh, is something which informs matter and uh, accidental form, which is something which inheres in matter or inheres in a certain subject that is. So um, yeah, sex, uh, sex is, a, is an accident of, uh, of the body. Yes. Uh, we, we, yes. So there are uh, two classes of accidents. I, I think we went over this earlier. I don't exactly remember where. So there are accidents which are like uh, whiteness. Oh, oh, yeah. I remember from the from the clip. Somebody made a clip making fun of me because I said uh, whiteness is an accident. Yeah, I could I could paint myself. I could paint myself and change my color. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that would be an example of a non-necessary accident or it's sometimes simply called accident there's other things which are called properties which have a certain necessity they're accidents which flow from the essence and uh gender would be one of those things uh which which are going to going to flow so you can't know transgenders out there you can't use what i'm saying here to like somehow metaphysically ground your uh your delusions
Yeah. Uh, so that that's getting into uh, so the question for everybody on YouTube is there's a question about whether we can call some of God's attributes uh, properties. So um, uh, you, you you might hear a palimism justification coming from me. Um, I, I'm I'm kidding. So actually, I think uh, when Palamas uses the language of quasi accident or quasi property. I actually don't think he's completely wrong there because in uh, Roman scholasticism, uh, which is just Catholic scholasticism, so everybody out there can cry. But in uh, in, in Roman scholasticism, we can uh, we can distinguish between what's called the metaphysical essence, which is uh, because when we understand God, uh, because we are so little, we have to understand God in all of these different concepts. Although they're concepts which we can predicate to God because it is a certain perfection that is grounded in God. So this is this is a little bit little bit weird for, for a lot of people to, to get. And we're going to get into it uh, when we go through the Compendium Theologiae. But there, we have all of these concepts uh, of perfections which flow from the divine essence. And we have what's called the metaphysical essence of God. So the metaphysical essence of God is the fact that he is ipsum uh, essay per se subsistence, that he is uh, being, remember we talked about earlier, uh, for us being in essence are distinct, for God being in essence are identical. He's pure being. So being uh, is always an act, so he's pure actuality. So this is, uh, pure being is, is, what, is what God is. So there are certain things which flow from being. So we can look at truth, we can look at goodness, we can look at intelligence, all of those things which flow from being. So in our conception of God, and this has a foundation of the thing, in the thing, we can look at God's essence, which is ipsum esse per se subsistence, and we can look at his attributes, which uh, logically flow from that essence. So actually, in, in a certain sense, we can we can look at it as an essence and properties, and this might be helpful to conceptualize. We have to recognize that this is something which isn't um, objectively in God, but this is something which is subjectively in us, but it has some sort of foundation, um, and it's due to the imperfection of our intellect. So yeah, we can call them quasi properties if you wanted to if you want to label it like that. You're welcome. Yep. Real. Yeah, there's 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 no there's no uh, distinction between his essence of being. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when it when it comes to us, uh, essence, just broadly speaking, if if we want to uh, if we want to just conceptualize it before we actually like start applying, um, it essence is just what we are. Uh, being is going to be that we are. So if uh, that which we are or what we are is identical to that we are, then that we are is going to be something which is essential for us. It's going to be part of our definition. And if uh, and if being is part of our definition, if it's part of uh, what we are, then we're going to necessarily exist. And being uh, can't be part of what we are. It can only be part of what God is because he is the only necessary uh, being.
Exactly. Exactly. God is, uh, and really, um, yeah, none of us are uh, in in the most proper sense of that. None of us are uh, really in in compare. We, we see this in Dionysius, and I guess I'm waxing a little poetic here. We see this in uh, Saint Dionysius's works: is that um, God is that that is the most proper uh, predicate to him to, to say God is, and uh, in comparison to God being, uh, it is almost as if we are not and we don't exist. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like if we if we consider like the English language for a second, because I think this is most helpful for people because people kind of throw out this term being all the time. They're like being this and being that, but they don't really like stop and think like, okay, what is being? So being is going to be the form of the copula that is is put in a participial form. So being, it's the ising of something. It's the it's the fact that something is a beer. It's an iser. It's like the, the the fact the sort of fact of ising if you if you want to put it like that. Um. So so when we when we think about it like in terms of that uh the the sort of actual existence, uh being actually becomes uh, a a term which uh, actually takes upon itself some meaning, and when we say that God is being. That God is uh, absolute existence, if you want to put it like that, or purely actual existence. For us, um, our existence is said to be mixed with essence. It's mixed with certain what's that are outside of is. Where all of God's what is contained inside that predicate is. Any other uh, questions? I'm going to have to go soon if, if there isn't, but I can probably take another one or two. Okay, back to the causes. Yeah. Does the does the for does the form of the statue exist? Yeah, yeah, it exists. It exists as it exists as the composite. Like we um we we can't just like tear apart a thing. Like I can't just look at my uh I don't know. I look at my book right here. And just take the the form of bookness and just rip it apart and just have like the pure matter staying apart. Like everything exists as a composite of matter and form, but we can't just really take them and separate them out and just look at them uh, like that. It, it, I, you you actually stumbled upon something which is very 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 important um because when when we have the separation of soul and body uh we're actually no longer a human being we're no longer a person we're no longer human uh rather we are a disembodied soul who takes upon itself uh uh well the, there's a difference when it comes to form being separated from matter and matter being separated from form because matter 
uh, without form would just cease into non-existence. So the body takes upon itself, um, takes upon itself the form of a dead body, takes upon itself a new form. But the the soul, if you want the traditional explanation by the Thomas, the soul it still um, inheres by some sort of transcendental or transcending relationship or uh, relation back to its body. Is that why that that's why it doesn't just like zip into nothingness uh, because um, because there still is this uh, it with everything that's around uh, us like the the book on my desk that has a material form but the body the the soul is is an immaterial form so uh, it kind of plays by slightly uh, different rules so it's able not to just have this sort of pure contact relationship but it's able to have a transcendental referential relationship that still adequately um keeps it keeps it up if you want to put it like that but yeah the body takes upon itself a material form and that material form is the form of a dead body. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, if you think about angels, for example, angels, they have, they have no matter. They're pure forms. Uh, their only composition is the composition of essence and existence. So uh, it, it, it's, it's just different. We can actually, that's actually a better answer. We can look at the souls as, uh, with some sort of re transcendental reference to body, but it still has that uh, the composition of uh, essence and existence and the non-necessity of matter that comes about uh, by being immaterial, uh, unlike all of the material forms around us. It's like when a book dies, we don't we don't say like, oh, good thing the book like ascended to heaven. That's kind of why the Thomist also views as a bit uh, silly, like um, the the idea of like resurrection of specific animals. It's like, what's next? You're going to resurrect your book collection to be in heaven with you? Like, <laughs> am I going to see all my old books again? Am I going to see my Summa in heaven? Like, that, that that's kind of why, like, we, 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 we scoff at least a little bit at the idea that animals are going to be in heaven. That's why we epically own the, the SCOTUS. Just kidding. Yes. Yes, that's true. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's the same. It's uh, materially identical. It's just changed form. So it still references back to the same matter in which it uh, it had inhered in. And I, I think that's sufficient. That is, that is a good question, actually, uh, the decomposition of body. And I haven't thought about that uh, too much. So I'll have, to, I'll have to get back to you about that. But good question. You, you, have, you have sufficiently debunked me. Uh, I'm just messing. Uh, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Yep, yep. You you teach the class. You <laughs> okay? So I'm gonna. So sorry for uh, for cutting off the question time, but I kind of got to get going. Uh, thank you everybody uh, for showing up. 
next week uh we will actually yeah i do i do need to say exactly what uh they say exactly what we're reading next time okay let's look collation sermons i said the command no i didn't say the commandments i said the apostles creed that's what i said okay let's see exactly I'm seeing exactly like I've never I've never had the the commentary on the apostles clean book form so not exactly sure this is going to take a little bit more reading this is going to be a little bit less like me explaining and more just like I guess more question and answer stuff but also a lot of me explaining because I like explaining although nobody else likes me explaining um Let's just do prologue, prologue, and then article, articles one and two, prologue and articles one and two. Let's just do that. Yes. So, yeah, if, if not, everybody will forget. Um, I know how it is. I would do the same thing. Okay, Apostles, Creed, Prologue, ah, Prologue 2, Article 2. So Prologue, Article 1, Article 2. That didn't seem like too much reading. Um, yeah, and I think, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it a little bit um, just kind of more summarizing for reminder purposes and then convoluted sections and then open up questioning. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be going through like every single last word of the commentary on the apostles creed. That would be absurd. Let me let me check Isidore. It's on aquinas.cc. I am assuming it's on Isidore. Ah, I went to Isidore like the actual Isidore Isidore, not like um let me see other comments. Yeah, I know this is Boomer moment. Mm, uh, Expositio. There it is. Yes, it is. It is on there. Um, it's actually on it on there with a little bit of a better. Does it, does this have the prologue? Yes, it has a prologue. What is faith? Ooh, that's gonna be so good. Talking about what faith is, so I can epically debunk all of the quasi-Protestant notions that most people have of faith. It'll be great. Okay, so that's all. Thank you all for sticking around. And thank you, everybody online. Uh, so I'll see you next week. And God bless.